Chapter Six, Part One of The Coming of the Fairies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Matter. The Coming of the Fairies by Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Six, Part One. Independent Evidence for Fairies. By a curious coincidence, if it be indeed a coincidence. At the moment when the evidence for the actual existence of fairies was brought to my notice, I had just finished an article dealing with the subject, in which I gave particulars of a number of cases where such creatures were said to have been seen, and showed how very strong were the reasons for supposing that some such forms of life exist. I now reproduce this article, and I add to it another chapter containing fresh evidence which reached me after the publication of the photographs in the Strand magazine. We are accustomed to the idea of amphibious creatures who may dwell unseen and unknown in the depths of the waters, and then sometime be spied sunning themselves upon a sandbank, whence they slip into the unseen once more. If such appearances were rare, and if it should so happen that some saw them more clearly than others, then a very pretty controversy would arise, for the skeptics would say, with every show of reason, our experience is that only land creatures live on the land and we utterly refuse to believe in things which slip in and out of the water if you will demonstrate them to us we will begin to consider the question faced by so reasonable an opposition the others could only mutter that they had seen them with their own eyes but that they could not command their movements the skeptics would hold the field something of the sort may exist in our psychic arrangements one can well imagine that there is a dividing line like the water edge, this line depending upon what we vaguely call a higher rate of vibrations. Taking the vibration theory as a working hypothesis, one could conceive that by raising or lowering the rate, the creatures could move from one side to the other of this line of material visibility, as the tortoise moves from the water to the land, returning for refuge to invisibility as the reptile scuttles back to the surf this of course is supposition but intelligent supposition based on the available evidence is the pioneer of science and it may be that the actual solution will be found in this direction i am alluding now not to spirit return where seventy years of close observation has given us some sort of certain and definite laws but rather to those fairy and phantom phenomena which have been endorsed by so many ages and still, even in these material days, seem to break into some lives in the most unexpected fashion. Victorian science would have left the world hard and clean and bare, like a landscape in the moon. But this science is in truth but a little light in the darkness, and outside that limited circle of definite knowledge we see the loom and shadow of gigantic and fantastic possibilities around us, throwing themselves continually across our consciousness, in such ways that it is difficult to ignore them. There is much curious evidence of varying value concerning these borderland forms, which come or go either in fact or imagination, the latter most frequently, no doubt. And yet there remains a residue which, by all human standards, should point to occasional fact. Lest I should be too diffuse, I limit myself in this essay to the fairies, and passing all the age-long tradition, which is so universal and consistent, come down to some modern instances which make one feel that this world is very much more complex than we had imagined 
and that there may be upon its surface some very strange neighbors who will open up inconceivable lines of science for our posterity especially if it should be made easier for them by sympathy or other help to emerge from the deep and manifest upon the margin taking a large number of cases which lie before me there are two points which are common to nearly all of them one is that children claim to see these creatures far more frequently than adults this may possibly come from greater sensitiveness of apprehension or it may depend upon these little entities having less fear of molestation from the children the other is that more cases are recorded in which they have been seen in the still shimmering hours of a very hot day than at any other time the action of the sun upon the brain says the skeptic possibly and also possibly not if it were a question of raising the slower vibrations of our surroundings one could imagine that still silent heat would be the very condition which might favor such a change what is the mirage in the desert what is that scene of hills and lakes which a whole caravan can see while it faces in a direction where for a thousand miles of desert there is neither hill nor lake nor any cloud or moisture to produce refraction i can ask the question but i do not venture to give an answer it is clearly a phenomenon which is not to be confused with the erect or of an inverted image which is seen in a land of clouds and of moisture if the confidence of children can be gained and they are led to speak freely it is surprising how many claim to have seen fairies my younger family consists of two little boys and one small girl very truthful children each of whom tells with detail the exact circumstances and appearance of the creature to each it happened only once and in each case it was a single little figure twice in the garden once in the nursery inquiry among friends shows that many children have had the same experience but they close up at once when met by ridicule and incredulity sometimes the shapes are unlike those which they would have gathered from picture books fairies are like nuts and moss says one child in lady glenconner's charming study of family life my own children differ in the height of the creatures which may well vary but in their dress they are certainly not unlike the conventional idea which after all may be the true one there are many people who have a recollection of these experiences of their youth and try afterwards to explain them away on material grounds which do not seem adequate or reasonable thus in his excellent book on folklore the reverend s baring gold gives us a personal experience which illustrates several of the points already mentioned in the year eighteen thirty eight he says when i was a small boy of four years old we were driving to montpellier on a hot summer day over the long straight road that traverses a pebble and rubble strewn plain on which grows nothing save a few aromatic herbs i was sitting on the box with my father when to my great surprise i saw legions of dwarfs of about two feet high running along beside the horses some sat laughing on the pole some were scrambling up the harness to get on the backs of the horses i remarked to my father what i saw when he abruptly stopped the carriage and put me inside beside my mother where the conveyance being closed i was out of the sun the effect was that little by little the host of imps diminished in number till they disappeared altogether here certainly the advocates of sunstroke have a strong though by no means a final case mr baring gold's next illustration is a sounder one when my wife was a girl of fifteen he says 
She was walking down a lane in Yorkshire between green hedges when she saw as seated in one of the privet hedges a little green man, perfectly well made, who looked at her with his beady black eyes. He was about a foot or fifteen inches high. She was so frightened that she ran home. She remembers that it was a summer day. A girl of fifteen is old enough to be a good witness, and her flight and the clear detail of her memory point to a real experience. Again, we have a suggestion of a hot day. Baring Gold has yet a third case. One day a son of mine, he says, was sent into the garden to pick pea-pots for the cook to shell for dinner. Presently he rushed into the house as wide as chalk to say that while he was thus engaged and standing between the rows of peas, he saw a little man wearing a red cap, a green jacket, and brown knee-breeches, whose face was old and wan, and who had a grey beard and eyes as black and hard as sloes. He stared so intently at the boy that the latter took to his heels. There again the pea-pods show that it was summer, and probably in the heat of the day. Once again the detail is very exact, and corresponds closely, as I shall presently show, to some independent accounts. Mr. Beringold is inclined to put all these down to the heat conjuring up the familiar pictures of fairy books, but some further evidence may cause the reader to doubt this explanation. Let us compare with these stories the very direct evidence of Mrs. Violet Tweedale, whose courage in making public the result of her own remarkable psychic faculties should meet with recognition from every student of the subject. Our descendants will hardly realize the difficulty which now exists in getting first-hand evidence with names attached, for they will have outgrown the state when the cry of fake and fraud and dupe is raised at once against any observer however honourable and moderate, by people who know little or nothing of this subject. Mrs. Tweedell says, I had a wonderful little experience some five years ago, which proved to me the existence of fairies. One summer afternoon I was walking alone along the avenue of Lapton House, Devonshire. It was an absolutely still day, not a leaf moving, and all nature seemed to sleep in the hot sunshine. A few yards in front of me, my eye was attracted by a violent movement of a single long blade-like leaf of a wild iris. This leaf was swinging and bending energetically, while the rest of the plant was motionless. Expecting to see a field mouse astride it, I stepped very softly up to it. What was my delight to see a tiny green man? He was about five inches long and was swinging back downwards. His tiny green feet, which appeared to be green-booted, were crossed over the leaf and his hands, raised behind his head, also held the blade. I had a vision of a merry little face and something red in the form of a cap on his head. For a full minute he remained in view, swinging on the leaf. Then he vanished. Since then I have several times seen a single leaf moving violently while the rest of the plant remained motionless, but I have never again been able to see the cause of the movement. Here the dress of the fairy, green jacket and red cap, is exactly the same as was described independently by Baring Gold's son. And again we have the element of heat and stillness. It may be fairly answered that many artists have drawn the fairies in such a dress, and that the colours may in this way have been impressed upon the minds of both observers. In the bending iris we have something objective, however, which cannot easily be explained away as a cerebral hallucination, 
and the whole incident seems to me an impressive piece of evidence. A lady with whom I have corresponded, Mrs. H., who is engaged in organizing work of the most responsible kind, has had an experience which resembles that of Mrs. Tweedale. My only sight of a fairy, she says, was in a large wood in West Sussex about nine years ago. He was a little creature about half a foot high, dressed in leaves. The remarkable thing about his face was that no soul looked through his eyes. He was playing about in long grass and flowers in an open space. Once again, Summers indicated. The length and color of the creature corresponds with Mrs. Tweedale's account, while the lack of soul in the eyes may be compared with the hard eyes described by young Baring Gold. One of the most gifted clairvoyants in England was the late Mr. Turvey, of Burnemouth, whose book, The Beginnings of Seership, should be in the library of every student. Mr. Lonsdale, of Burnemouth, is also a well-known sensitive. The latter has given me the following account of an incident which he observed some years ago in the presence of Mr. Turvey. I was sitting, says Mr. Lonsdale, in his company in his garden at Branksome Park. We sat in a hut which had an open front looking on to the lawn. We had been perfectly quiet for some time, neither talking nor moving, as was often our habit. Suddenly I was conscious of a movement on the edge of the lawn, which on that side went up to a grove of pine trees. Looking closely, I saw several little figures, dressed in brown, peering through the bushes. They remained quiet for a few minutes, and then disappeared. In a few seconds, a dozen or more small people, about two feet in height, in bright clothes and with radiant faces, ran on to the lawn, dancing hither and thither. I glanced at Turvey to see if he saw anything, and whispered, Do you see them? He nodded. These fairies played about, gradually approaching the hut. One little fellow, bolder than the others, came to a croquet hoop close to the hut, and, using the hoop as a horizontal bar, turned round and round it, much to our amusement. Some of the others watched him, while others danced about, not in any sad dance, but seemingly moving in sheer joy. This continued for four or five minutes, when suddenly, evidently in response to some signal or warning from those dressed in brown, who had remained at the edge of the lawn, they all ran into the wood. Just then a maid appeared, coming from the house with tea. Never was tea so unwelcome, as evidently its appearance was the cause of the disappearance of our little visitors, Mr. Lonsdale adds. I have seen fairies several times in the New Forest, but never so clearly as this. Here also the scene is laid in the heat of a summer day, and the division of the fairies into two different sorts is remarkably borne out by the general descriptions. Knowing Mr. Lonsdale, as I do to be a responsible, well-balanced and honourable man, I find such evidence as this very hard to put to one side. Here, at least, the sunstroke hypothesis is negative, since both men sat in the shade of the hut and corroborated the observation of the other. On the other hand, each of the men, like Mrs. Tweedale, was supernormal in psychic development, so that it might well happen that the maid, for example, would not have seen the fairies, even if she had arrived earlier upon the scene. I know a gentleman, belonging to one of the learned professions, whose career as, let us say, a surgeon, would not be helped if this article were to connect him with fairy lore. As a matter of fact, in spite of his solemn avocations and his practical and virile character, he seems to be endowed with that faculty, 
let us call it the appreciation of the higher vibrations, which opens up so wonderful a door to its possessor. He claims, or rather he admits, for he is reticent upon the subject, that he has carried this power of perception on from childhood, and his surprise is not so much at what he sees as at the failure of others to see the same thing. To show that it is not subjective, he tells the story that on one occasion, while traversing a field, he saw a little creature which beckoned eagerly that he should follow. He did so, and presently saw his guide pointing with an air of importance to the ground. There, between the furrows, lay a flint arrowhead, which he carried home with him as a souvenir of that adventure. Another friend of mine who claims to have the power of seeing fairies is Mr. Tom Tyrell, famous medium, whose clairvoyance and general psychic gifts are of the strongest character. I cannot easily forget how one evening in a Yorkshire hotel a storm of raps, sounding very much as if someone were cracking their fingers and thumbs, broke out around his head, and how, with his coffee cup in one hand, he flapped vigorously with the other to warn off his inopportune visitors. In answer to my question about fairies, he says, Yes, I do see these little pixies, or fairies. I have seen them scores of times, but only in the woods and when I do a little fasting. They are a very real presence to me. What are they? I cannot say. I can never get nearer to the beggars than four or five yards. They seem afraid of me, and then scamper off, up the trees like squirrels. I dare say if I were to go in the woods oftener, I would perhaps gain their confidence more. They are certainly like human beings, only very small, say about twelve or fifteen inches high. I have noticed they are brown in color, with fairly large heads and standing up ears, out of proportion to the size of their bodies and bandy legs. I am speaking of what I see. I have never come across any other clairvoyant who has seen them, though I have read that many do so. Probably they have something to do with nature processes. The males have very short hair, and the females have rather long straight hair. The idea that these little creatures are occupied in consciously furthering nature's projects, very much, I suppose, as the bee carries pollen, is repeated by the learned Dr. Vanstone, who combines great knowledge of theory with some considerable experience, though a high development of intellect is, in spite of Swedenborg's example, a bar to psychic perception. This would show, if it is correct, that we may have to return to the classical conception of something in the nature of naiads and founts and spirits of the trees and groves. Dr. Vanstone, whose experiences are on the borderland between what is objective and what is sensed without being actually seen, writes to me, I have been distinctly aware of minute intelligent beings in connection with the evolution of plant forces, particularly in certain localities. For example, in Ecclesbourne Glen, Pond life yields to me the largest and best sense of fairy life, and not the floral world. I may be only clothing my subjective consciousness with unreal objective imaginations, but they are real to me as sentient, intelligent beings, able to communicate with us in varying distinctness. I am inclined to think that elemental beings are engaged, like factory bands, in facilitating the operation of nature's laws. End of part one of chapter six.